So um, I'd like to spend uh, a few minutes uh, this morning thinking about the passage that we've just read in Joshua chapter 1. From time to time, we all face new chapters in life, don't we? Our circumstances change dramatically. Things are no longer as they were before. Some events happen to everyone and they're long anticipated. They're sort of rites of passage, if you like. Things like starting a new school. We know it's coming up. We know it's going to happen. Other events are of our choosing. And again, they don't come out of the blue. We expect them because we've planned a change. Perhaps we take a new job. Or we get married. Or we decide to move to a new home. But other episodes in life are neither expected nor indeed welcome. Events such as being diagnosed with a serious illness or losing a loved one. Whatever the event, these all share one common feature. Because when we turn a new chapter in life, it means we're facing the unknown. We don't know what's awaiting over the horizon. And depending on the event, we may face these new chapters in a variety of ways. If you're moving home, you'll be excited. But if you're starting a new job, well, you might have a degree of trepidation. The child going off to a new school may well be apprehensive. Will I make friends? What will it be like? Well, they're not nearly as apprehensive as the parents that they'll leave behind. But someone else might be devastated, receiving a diagnosis of cancer and being told they only have a few weeks to live. Now, as a congregation, we're entering a new chapter, aren't we? Last week, we said goodbye to the Pearson family. For some of you, Andy was the only minister that you've ever known here at LCPC. And maybe as you face this uh, dramatic event, uh, you have a mixture of emotions as you turn the page in this history of LCPC. Maybe you were shocked. Maybe you were disappointed. Maybe you face the coming months with a degree of apprehension, unsure what it will look like. Well, whatever your feelings as we face these coming months, we're all facing a degree of uncertainty as we turn the page, turn to a new chapter. We don't know what we will find written on the pages of history that lies ahead. Well, the passage we're looking at this morning is about how the Israelites faced a new chapter in their life. Remember, they've been wandering around the wilderness for um, decades now. And they're gathered on the plains of Moab on the east side of River Jordan. And they've got a new chapter in their life as a nation awaiting them. They're going to leave the wilderness behind. And they're about to start a new phase in their history, entering 
the promised land of Canaan. But this isn't the only element of their new chapter because uh, here at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1 we find devastating news because it starts in chapter 1 verse 1 after the death of Moses. How did the children of Israel feel? Moses was dead. He was the only leader most of them had ever known. And uh, looking back at the uh, the history of Moses' interaction with uh, the people of Israel, there were a series of dramatic events which Moses was intimately involved with. He'd performed the miracles in Egypt which had led to them being uh, released from Pharaoh's grasp. He'd led the uh, children of Israel through the Red Sea, separating the waters, or God separating the waters through him. He'd led them through the wilderness for years. God had spoken through Moses, delivering the law. Moses then had been the center of their corporate existence. He'd encouraged them. He'd chastened them at times. He'd prayed for them and interceded for them with the Lord. And he'd led them all the way from Egypt through to this uh, cusp of moving into the promised land. And now we're told Moses is dead. The effect on the people of Israel is dramatic. We read in Deuteronomy 34 that they wept and they mourned for 30 days. John Calvin uh, said this event left Israel like a, a decapitated body. Uh, they'd left, lost the very uh, head uh, who they were used to. And perhaps you can identify how they were feeling. Maybe you've got personal turmoil, facing unemployment, experiencing loneliness, struggling with illness. Also corporately, as a church, we face the reality of our minister moving to another congregation and now have this period of vacancy, just as Moses was dead, and he has got in his car and driven off to Dundee. We're going to look at how God dealt with the Israelites in this situation and try and learn some lessons for ourselves. And we're going to look at it under three headings. Firstly, a servant prepared. Uh, Then a promised preserved And then thirdly, a means provided. Firstly, a servant prepared, a promise preserved, and then a means provided. So a servant prepared then. Look at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. When I was a child, um, there was a TV program that we used to watch called Blue Peter. I understand that it's still there now that you can find it on children's TV channels, although it's no doubt very different from how it was in my youth. And uh, on this TV program, they had lots of things of interest, but one of the things they did was they used to build models of of things out of household um, uh, 
uh, rubbish, if you like. So you could build a rocket out of an empty washing-up bottle or a, a, a model of Buckingham Palace out of an empty shoebox, something like that. But because when they made these things, they were sticking things together, you know, they get so far, and then they couldn't go any further on the TV show. So there was this phrase that the presenter always used. They said, well, here's one I prepared earlier. And they would get the finished product out for you to see. Well, we've got a sort of a bit of a here's one I prepared earlier situation here. Because uh, Joshua appears here at the beginning of Joshua chapter 1. But he didn't appear completely out of nowhere. God had been preparing him for this task that he had to take over from Moses over many years. And if we look back in the scriptures, prior to this book, the book of Joshua, we find a whole series of cameo scenes, little glimpses of Joshua which helps us understand how God was preparing him for the role that he was going to fulfill here as he led the children of Israel on into Canaan. He first appears in Exodus chapter 17. Um, There's a, a battle taking place between the Israelites and the Amalekites. You may remember the story that, um, uh, if Moses raised his hand, uh, the the troops of the Israelites would have success, and if his hand fell down, then they began to lose the battle. So Aaron and Hur stood on each side of Moses, holding his hands up. And although the center of that story in Exodus 17 is very much around Moses, we're told there that it was Joshua who was the commander of the Israelite troops. I'm sure he didn't become commander without having proved himself in battle somewhere uh, before that. So um, we can deduce from that that he was used to fighting and leading his men. And then we find in Numbers 13 uh, that uh, he was one of the 12 that Moses sent to spy out the promised land. He was an experienced person because he is described as one of the heads of the households. He was mature. He could be trusted. He could go and make an assessment of how things were. And then in Numbers 14, we find when the, when the spies return, um, that uh, their report is wonderful. The land of Canaan is a land filling with, filled with milk and honey, but he descri- they also describe the opposition that they might face. And you re- may remember the story, as it was referred to, I think, last Sunday, that um, the, uh, the people of Israel uh, had no faith. They, 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 uh, they wilted at the prospect of battling against uh, the... Uh, the inhabitants of the promised land, there were, uh, there were giants and they, the, uh, they felt that they were as grasshoppers compared to them. And there was an awful uh, situation where the whole people rebelled against God. And it was only Joshua, Joshua and Caleb alone at Kadesh Benir, who stood firm 
and had faith in God. And so Joshua matured. In Numbers 27, he's inaugurated as Moses' assistant. And by the time we get to Deuteronomy 34, he is described as being a man full of wisdom and appointed to take over when Moses dies. So we see that in God's providence, God had been prereparing this man Joshua for the new chapter that the Israelites were about to enter. I'm sure the Israelites didn't realize what was going on, but unseen, God had been at work crafting Joshua to be the man ready to take on the role. He'd been experienced in the the rigors of hand-to-hand combat. He'd accumulated wisdom over the years in different circumstances. And he demonstrated most forcefully that he was a man of faith, a man who trusted his God. From these glimpses we see that God had been preparing Joshua for the task. So what can we learn from this? Well, firstly, as we face the prospect of finding a new minister, doesn't this help us as we reflect on the the gap that has been left with Andy going off to Dundee? Does it feel like there's a void in the congregation? Doesn't this story, this account, encourage you about finding a new minister? God is sovereign. Has he not already been preparing a man to fulfill the role? Just as he prepared Joshua years before he was needed. So we can trust that God will be preparing his man and has been preparing his man years before the need arose. So we should pray not only that we find a new minister, but also that God will give a new minister the right experiences to prepare him for a role here at LCPC in the future. The second thing that I think we can learn by way of an application from just this verse is that something from the identity of who Joshua is. The Israelites were devastated. Moses was dead. They'd wept for 30 days. And into that void, the Lord provided this new servant, Joshua. Joshua's name means the Lord is salvation. And in the New Testament, there is somebody else called the Lord is salvation. And that is Jesus the name Jesus is the same as the name Joshua. So when we look at Joshua here in this book, it should point us to another servant, the Jesus who we read of in the New Testament. What about us and the new chapters that we might be facing in life? 
Joshua points us, you see, to another servant. A servant that God has provided to lead us whatever the challenges that we may face in life. And he, this servant, is one who is perfectly equipped to help in our time of need. Whatever new chapter you may be turning to, Joshua points us to the perfect servant. Not a servant who will die as Joshua ultimately did, or Moses did, but to a servant who now lives forever. Not to a servant who will be called away to another congregation, but a servant who, we read in the scriptures, sticks closer than a brother. Not a servant who will ultimately have his own sin and weaknesses, but a perfect, sinless, selfless servant. One who's also a suffering servant, a servant who ultimately laid down his life for us while we were yet enemies of God. So whatever uncertainties we may face, Joshua here reminds us to look to Jesus, the one leader provided by our God. So whether you face loneliness or illness or unemployment or some other trial, God has provided Christ to whom we can look to lead, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, if that's the servant whom God had prepared, the second thing to look at is the promise that God preserved. You can uh, look at verses 3 and 4. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea, toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. These are stirring words spoken by God to Joshua. What would Joshua have made of this? Was it like uh, the talk from a football team manager to his players just before going out onto the pitch? Was it the rousing speech of an army commander before going into battle? I've no doubt Joshua would have been encouraged by these words. Moses was the man that Joshua had served as an assistant, and yet Moses was now dead. And yet God here promises in verse 3, doesn't he? He says, I will be due to you just as I promised to Moses. And uh, there's a similar promise given to Moses about uh, uh, the land being given wherever the sole of his foot treads. We, we find recorded in Deuteronomy 11.34. So there would have been an echo that uh, Joshua would have recognized. It would have been a reassurance that God would deal with Joshua just as he had dealt with Moses. But that's not all we see from these verses. I don't know if you remember last year sometime, um, there was a picture which was widely publicized in the newspapers of a nurse with a mask on. But it wasn't just a picture of a nurse with a mask on because it was a collage made up of lots of pictures of healthcare workers. So it was claimed, I think, that it was 
all sorts of claims made about who those healthcare workers were. I think ultimately they were healthcare workers who had died in Mexico. But a picture of each put together gave us a picture of a nurse. And the books of the Bible are a little bit like that. There are a whole series of individual stories, isolated events and characters. And if we look at each one, they teach us about God, about the sin in people's hearts, and how God saves his people through his divine intervention. But but when you put all those pictures together, we see actually that there's a bigger story, although the story itself is the same as the stories that are in each of the little pictures. And we sort of have a reference to that in verse 6. And remember, this is God speaking to Joshua. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. God is here referring to fathers of Joshua. And he's referring to a promise that God made to fathers of Joshua. So God has promised to Joshua that as he goes into the land of Canaan, the land will be given to them. But we've already seen that God also made that promise to Moses. But we can go further back. If we see that God made promise originally to Abraham in Genesis 15. And God repeated that promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, in Genesis 26. And God repeated that promise again to Jacob in Genesis 28. So you see, as Joshua stood on the plains of Moab, as they were turning into a new chapter in the life of Israel, Moses was dead. All those events that had been seminal in the life of Moses were behind them. The signs and wonders and the plagues, the separation of the Red Sea, receiving the Ten Commandments, the instigation of the temple sacrifices, the wanderings in the desert, all these things were behind them at this point. But here... God is reminding Joshua of the big picture. God here isn't just giving him a pep talk to fire him up for his new assignment. Joshua would have understood that his task, his picture, was to complete the promise of God, the big picture, the promise that God first gave to Abraham centuries before. See, God's servant had changed. Moses was dead. But God's promise had not. God's promise had survived and been worked out through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 
Joseph, Moses, and all the intervening years. Joshua's task was not to complete the task that Moses had started. Joshua's task was to play his part in God's greater plan. Joshua's task was to bring fruition to the covenant promise that God had made centuries before. Now, what can we learn from this? Let's think about our situation uh, needing a new minister. Though our minister has left, Andy was not engaged in his own mission, was he? He was just part of a much greater plan that God has to save people from their sins. It's a plan which was first declared in the Garden of Eden. We heard that from Harrison um, uh, weeks ago. It was expressed through the types and shadows of the Old Testament. Um, we heard that through Andy's preaching in, uh, in, in Numbers. Um, it's illustrated in the Bible through all the dealings of God with the people of Israel before the coming of Christ. And it was exhibited to the world when the Lord Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and rose again. And now it's been broadcast, the gospel to the world, through the work of individual preachers and missionaries and our own witness. So then we're not tasked with picking up a work that Andy Pearson started. The work has a higher authority and is bigger than that. When Jesus left his disciples, he gave them a commission, the great commission that we read summarized at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus told his people to take the gospel out to all the nations, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them. The Lord initiated that mission, and just as Andy played his part for a season here at LCPC, well, there will be others who will need to carry it on. It may be us for a while. But we trust there will be another man to pick up another chapter in the gospel work here at LCPC. But because Jesus instigated the ministry, it is Jesus who has promised that he will complete it, even though the participants may change from time to time. But there's a second application might just like, like to think about. Let me ask a question. Why did God take the Israelites to that particular piece of land? Why this great plan to take them out of Egypt after being there for centuries, spending decades wandering around in the wilderness and then coming to this land the land of Canaan. Why did God choose to do that? Well, the answer is in verse 3. Every place that the sole of your foot put upon, I have given to you. The Israelites didn't work to earn this land. It was given to them. The Israelites didn't really have any desire for the land either. You know, children who really want something for Christmas... I want a dog, or I want a pony. And you'll hear it incessantly. It's all they can think of. But this wasn't true of the Israelites. Given half the chance, they wanted to go back to Egypt 
and thought that was far better. So why did God take the Israelites into Canaan? And the answer is simple. He wanted to. He chose to. It was his good pleasure to give it to them. The Bible gives us no explanation as to why God promised Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. It was a gift, a gift from a gracious God who chose to promise to give it to them. Everything about this, from the initial promise, through the history of Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, all the way to Joshua, points to one thing. It points and underscores that God, in his grace, gives to an undeserving and an undesiring people. And the lesson for us is that if we deal, that we deal with the same God, the promise that we see being fulfilled through Joshua reminds us that everything that we have comes to us as a gift from the gracious of hand of God to an undeserving and an undesiring people. God gives us because he loves. And where else is this epitomized most than in Jesus? God so loved us, we read, that he gave us his son. And so as we read um, of the uh, promise preserved here, it points us to a gracious and giving God. And then finally, uh, we find the means provided. And uh, we find that in verses 7 through to 9. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all, all to, to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. One of the challenges that we have when reading uh, Old Testament historical accounts is identifying the types when, or pictures when they appear in the narrative. We've seen that Canaan was the promised land. It was promised to Abraham. And now the people are entering into it. But what does this land represent for us? Back in Exodus 15, God prophesied to Abraham that his descendants would be taken into captivity only to be brought out after 400 years and brought to their inheritance. And that's the, the language that is spoken of here in Joshua, an inheritance. This is the end of the journey when the children of Israel get to settle in their inheritance. It's like a marathon. The, uh, the, the, the narrative has been going on for years and uh, here is Joshua just getting ready for the last push into Canaan. The finishing line is in sight. It looks as if Joshua has almost reached it. 
Well, the Bible speaks of a future promised rest. We read about that in Hebrews 4 in the the second passage which we looked at. Hebrews 4.4 tells us that God entered into his own rest on the Sabbath day. And in verse 3 we are told, we who have believed enter that rest. Hebrews then looks forward to a time when the Christian will rest from the struggles of life and be with God. Heaven isn't explained to us in forensic detail in the scriptures anywhere, but we do have glimpses, such as Revelation 21, where we're told that God will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That then is the rest that the Bible speaks of, ultimately, for the Christian to be with his or her God. And uh, the, the strife of the Christian life shall be over. But there's a problem when we look at Canaan through that lens. Because God had given the Israelites an inheritance in that land. But if we read on in the book of Joshua, we find it wasn't very restful. There were battles and long marches. There was toil and bloodshed. There were fortified cities to be overcome. There were disappointments. There were failures. There were setbacks. See, God had given it to them. It was an inheritance, but they had to fight for every inch of it. So then Canaan is not so much the experience of the Christian when we go to be with the Lord. It's more a picture of the experience through our life on our way to the Lord. Joshua's promised land is not so much a type or picture of our destination, but it's a type or picture of our journey to get there. And indeed, in Hebrews chapter 4, there's a degree of confirmation there. For uh, we're told there in in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So we understand then that the people did not receive ultimate rest here in the land of Canaan. There was going to be no rest in the years ahead for Joshua. They were going to be tough. They were going to be hard. And as Joshua stood on the plains of Moab, uh, looking across to Canaan, he'd have seen a whole lot of reasons to be discouraged. There was a wide river in front of him, a river in flood. Just across the river was Jericho, one of many fortified cities in that land. The land was occupied by fearsome armies, as the spies had reported many years before. They were equipped with chariots of iron, and there were giants amongst their ranks. 
So here's Joshua, the leader of this nomadic band of shepherds, just about to embark into Canaan, faced with all this potential difficulty. And God exhorts Joshua. He tells him not to doubt or to waver, but to be strong and courageous. And uh, we see here in the passage two reasons for this, both of which should be equally an encouragement to us today. The first reason he gives us is in verses 7 and 8. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded from you. And then going on, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, and then you'll be prosperous. So the first thing we see is that Joshua had God's written word. The book of the law referred to in verse 8 may well just have been the book of Deuteronomy, and of course, in one sense, he only had those first five books of the scriptures. But that, to a certain extent, doesn't matter in terms of applying that to ourselves. We have that same privilege today. God has revealed himself through his word, and we have that recorded for us. But we see that Joshua isn't told just to keep God's word on his bookshelf. He's told, first of all, that it shouldn't depart from his mouth. And um, in thinking about that, it may be helpful to think about the idea of reading. We tend to read in our minds quite often, but... um, as every indication that uh, in early days reading would have been out loud. We see that with the, sort, the account of Philip encountering the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember what happened? Philip was taken uh, out to the road to Gaza where the Ethiopian eunuch was uh, travelling whilst reading the prophet Isaiah. And it tells us there that Philip heard the Ethiopian eunuch reading. So, at one level, this is simply a command that we should read God's word regularly. If God is going to encourage us and give us strength to stand up against temptation and opposition, then we need to read the Bible regularly. But here Joshua is not told just to read it, he's told to meditate on it day and night. Now, the Hebrew word for meditate is closely linked to another Hebrew word, which means to turn over. And when you meditate on something, you ponder it, you turn it over in your mind. My uh, father-in-law illustrated this with an orange. He says, if you take an orange and you put it in your hand and you turn it in your hand, what happens? Well, after a while, if you take your hand away from the orange, you will smell the orange on your hand, won't you? Or your your hand will change colour. Well, it's like that with God's word. You turn it over in your mind, you meditate on it, 
and it will begin to rub off on you. And it begins to influence your life. So uh, the instruction to Joshua was he should read the word and he should meditate on the word. It should rub off on his life and then he should be diligent to do according to all that is written in it. The promised success to Joshua came from his obedience to God's word. The word he was told to read and meditate regularly. And he would not succeed in his task of entering Canaan if he chose to ignore it. And the same is true for us today, isn't it? We can't play at being Christians. We can't hope to succeed in our Christian life if we don't devote time to the instruction of God's word. And isn't this the indication that we personally should take from these verses in our own personal lives? Whatever new chapters we may be turning to in our lives, we will only know good success in our Christian walk if we read and meditate regularly on God's word and live in obedience to it. But the second reason that Joshua is given to be strong and courageous in the face of all this opposition is to be found in the last verse, verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What greater encouragement can there be than that? Joshua's God was the creator of the cosmos. Joshua's God was the one who made a promise hundreds of years before, which was now coming to pass, because Joshua's God was a sovereign God. Joshua's God was a God of providence, who worked out his purposes. And that's why Joshua could gain strength from knowing that the Lord, his God, was with him. He says to Joshua, I am with you. What more could he want for as he turned this new chapter in his life, as he faced the uncertainty of all that stood before him? As Christians, the Lord Jesus warned us that the world will hate us. But he also gave the same reassurance. He said he would be with us. And isn't this the greatest encouragement we can have as a church as we turn this new chapter into this period of vacancy? Just as Joshua was told that the Lord God was with him, so the Lord Jesus told his disciples that they would not be alone because at the end of Matthew's Gospel, when he gave that commission, the Lord concluded with the words, Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So isn't that an encouragement for us as we enter this time of uncertainty that God is with us and that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us even to the end of the age? 
There's one final observation which it might be helpful to make because I skipped over a verse. don't know if you noticed. In verse 2. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. You see, this command was given to Joshua and the people of Israel. The promises and the reassurance that Joshua was given in this passage was given to Joshua and the people of Israel. But I wonder whether you can identify with the people of Israel this morning. Here in verse 2, they're ready to enter the promised land led by Joshua, knowing that however tough it might be, the Lord God was with them. They knew that God had equipped them with his word to direct them through life. They were buoyed by a sure promise of success, reassured that their Lord was with them. Friends, these promises and reassurances were given to the people of God. They were only to be found in Joshua, and for us, they are only to be found in Jesus. Whatever new chapters in life you are turning to, you will only find this reassurance, this promise, this support, this direction in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can't have it if you're not following him. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is indeed um, sharper than a two-edged sword. It cuts to the marrow. We thank you too, Lord, that it is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. It shows us the way where we should go. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth that you remind us of this morning, that you are the great almighty God of the cosmos, that you are working out your plans and purposes, and that you have provided for your people as they embark upon the Christian life. We thank you, Lord, for your presence, your direction, and your overruling power. And Lord, we ask that all of us might look to and trust in that same God as we go out into these coming days. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.